My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, before we jump into Hebrews 3, just a couple of things that are happening soon that I wanted you to know about. Uh, right after this service, we have an open forum for a proposed amendment to our bylaws. Last November, we kind of talked about our desire, uh, a, an amendment the elders are suggesting that we would uh, uh, allow our bylaws or amend our bylaws so that all full-time pastors would become part of the elder board. We have uh, put some communication out about that. We wanted a chance to have a conversation too. So that's going to happen in room 100 right after this service. That's the first thing. The second is that there, we're going to host a prayer gathering for the situation in Ukraine tomorrow night at 6 p.m. here at the church. It'll be in the youth room down the hall. So if you are able, we invite you to come and join us as we lift, uh, lift this situation, these people. Um, uh, as you know, we have uh, uh, some of our outreach partners serving in this region. We want to lift this before the Lord uh, and, and bring it to Him. If you can't make the in-person gathering tomorrow night, the regular weekly uh, Monday morning prayer time that happens on Zoom at 6.30 a.m. is also going to be devoting that time to praying for Ukraine. And uh, you can find that group on Church Center. We'll also post a link to it, I think, um, in our online community as well. So Hebrews 3. Clear back in November of 1872... A recently refitted ship that was called the Mary Celeste set sail from New York Harbor en route to Genoa, Italy. The captain of the ship was a guy named Benjamin Briggs. He was an accomplished sailor. He was a master mariner, which is you know kind of a cool title that it actually means something apparently in, in sailing. Like you have to achieve that certification. He knew what he was doing as a captain. And accompanying him on that ship was his wife and his youngest child. Thought it'd be fun to bring them along for this new voyage on this, you know, recently updated ship. He had seven crew members with him, and their cargo was 1,700 barrels of industrial alcohol. And their anticipations were high. Uh, Briggs declared himself imminently satisfied with both the ship and the crew. This was going to be fun. Eight days later, a Canadian ship called the Dei Gratia uh, set sail from New Jersey, not, not far from New York, and basically followed the same route as it was headed also to Genoa, Italy. But on December 7th, the crew of the Dei Gratia noticed uh, a ship kind of being tossed about in the distance. It looked like it was in distress, and as they tried to signal it, nobody was responding. As they got closer, they could see there was nobody on the deck. So they sent a couple of people out in a boat to go investigate what was going on with this ship. And as they drew near to it, they discovered it, that ship was the Mary Celeste that had departed just days before them. When they boarded the ship, they found the cargo was intact and all of the personal effects of the crew and the captain were undisturbed. Uh, didn't seem like pirates or anything. They found six months worth of provision food and, and, and stores on board. They did find some water in the hull of the ship, but not that much. The, the ship was still seaworthy. All that was missing were all of the people and the one lifeboat that had been on board. The last log entry was dated 10 days before they discovered the ship and about 
400 miles west of where they found it. Now, the reason that everybody abandoned the, Mer- the Mary Celeste, uh, that's been debated and even mythologized for over a century, right? That's still a mystery to this day. But whatever the cause, the captain, his family, the crew, they all somehow reached the conclusion that they would be safer or perhaps get to shore faster by abandoning ship and taking off on their own. The tragic irony is that the ship that they abandoned was found just 10 days later. In fact, it was so seaworthy that it was continued to be sailed by its owners for many more years, whereas the passengers who abandoned that ship and let go were lost forever. If we're going to make it all the way home in our faith, if we are to enter the eternal rest that the Lord has promised us to reach those golden shores, as the old hymn puts it, then we must hold our original confidence in Christ firm all the way to the end. All the way to the end. The faith that we begin with when we first trust Christ is the faith that will bring us home because it's not a faith in us. It's not a faith in who we are or what we do. It is a faith in Christ and who he is, what he has done. We must Hold on to him all the way home. Because as we're going to see in our passage this morning, it is possible to begin well and finish poorly. Or not at all. Right? And not just in seafaring or or life in general. In our pursuit of God, it's possible. And I say this as someone who believes strongly in the eternal security of the believer that the Lord will carry genuine believers all the way home, that we will persevere uh, in, our, in our faith according to Scripture, that, that we can't undo the salvation that God does in us. I believe that. I also believe that Scripture gives us warnings not to take that confidence for granted. And that's what we have here. You know, to, the, the warning not to think that just because I... I leave from, I launch from the right harbor, then it doesn't matter how I live or which ship I sail to get to the destination. He doesn't want us to assume that. And so God in his grace gives us warnings like what we have in our passage, both a warning and an invitation, a warning and an invitation to persevere in faith and finish well, to finish well. Because in Jesus, we have a better rest, a better rest, a sure and certain destination that he alone can deliver us to, a rest that's better than anything ancient Israel's old covenant promised and anything anyone might come up with today. In Christ, we have a better rest. And so to help us understand the beauty of that and also the danger of failing to enter that rest through unbelief or disobedience, The author of Hebrews begins here by telling us a tragic tale of his own. He takes us back to the Old Testament, to the story of ancient Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. You'll notice that the author begins with a a lengthy quotation from Psalm 95. 
Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so if you go back to Psalm 95, uh, you'll notice it begins with praise. In fact, Psalm 95, that was our, our call to worship this morning. It begins with this invitation to come praise the Lord, but then it ends with a warning. A warning not to repeat the rebellion of ancient Israel in the wilderness. It takes us back to this, uh, to Exodus, the story of Exodus, this uh, location between Egypt and the promised land where Israel put God to the test. And that's a story that we today may or may not be very familiar with, but the first readers of Hebrews would have been very familiar with it and would have understood that this is a serious deal. So, so if you go back to Exodus 17, you don't have to turn there, but this is from Exodus 17 verses 1, and 3, 1 to 3. All the congregation of the people of Israel had moved from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So understand what's, what's happening here. This part of the Exodus story, this is just three chapters after God miraculously saved Israel from generations of slavery in Egypt, right? And he did it in a dramatic way. The ten plagues, parting the Red Sea, sending it crashing down on their enemies. They have just experienced one of the most miraculous, powerful demonstrations of God's salvation in history. God keeping his promise to do for them what he said he would do when he first revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, clear back in Exodus 3. He says to him, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God promises rest for his weary people. He rescues them to bring them into that rest. And in the beginning, they believe. They start well. Exodus 14, 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They started well with faith. But not even three months pass till you get to that story in chapter 17. And they're in the wilderness, and they're thirsty, and they're grumbling, saying, why did you even rescue us in the first place? Rather than responding with faith in the God who just displayed his absolutely incredible power, 
Rather than crying out to him, instead they harden their hearts in unbelief and they respond to him with disobedience by putting God to the test. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us in the wilderness with thirst? Is the Lord with us or not? Now, one of the remarkable parts of that old story is that despite the temper tantrum that Israel's throwing, God actually gives them the water. Like in his mercy, he still provides. But they commemorate that incident by calling the name of the place Masa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And unfortunately, this isn't going to be the last time that Israel tests the Lord in the wilderness when they're thirsty and he provides water from a rock at a place called Meribah. The exact same thing happens decades later in Numbers chapter 20. And, and this time, not even Moses responds with faith. And so you have these two incidents, these two rebellions of Israel in the wilderness that kind of bracket their experience and summarize the kind of unbelief and disobedience that ultimately cost so many of them their inheritance. As Psalm 95 looks back on it, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they, should, they are people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways Therefore, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Because of Israel's unbelief, God swears in Numbers 14 that none of the adults in that generation who witnessed and experienced the salvation of God coming out of Egypt will enter the promised land and see the rest except for Joshua and Caleb who believed. The rest of them would die in the wilderness. As Kent Hughes has said, the grand and terrible lesson of Israel's history is that it is possible to begin well and end poorly. It's possible to begin well and end poorly. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And their essential problem, according to, to Hebrews 3.19, what ultimately caused them to end poorly is unbelief. Unbelief, a refusal to trust God. A refusal to trust God. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Verse 19. Or as he puts it in chapter 4, verse 2, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. People like Caleb and Joshua who actually believed, who stayed in the boat. They heard God's promise and trusted it. The rest of the generation heard it, but they didn't trust it. Instead, they decided that God in his love and his power is not really seaworthy. They, they looked at the stores. They, they thought they looked depleted. They felt like the, water, the, the ship was taking on water. 
And so they decided to, to put the lifeboat overboard, cut the rope, and abandon ship. And none of them made it out of the wilderness. None of them. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. And, and I want to be clear. You know, we're not talking about the kind of unbelief where some, something tragic happens and our faith is shaken. Or, or I have these doubts that I'm kind of struggling with and wrestling with. And we all have doubts at times. At times, unbelief here is coupled with another word that, that refers to a disobedient disbelief. So he's not talking about a weak faith. He's talking about a rejection of faith, right? A rejection of faith, a refusal to continue trusting in the Lord. It's one thing to wander the boat anxiously wondering, is this thing going to hold together and get me home? It's a different thing to cut the rope and abandon ship, right? That's what he's talking about, what we often describe as apostasy. So rejecting the Christian faith, deciding I am no longer going to trust the Lord to get me home. I'm going to put my lot in somewhere else. That's, that's the kind of unbelief here. And that unbelief has disastrous results. Through it, we forfeit the rest that God wants to give, the rest, the life that he alone can give. And, and, and the reason the author is taking us back to this story, it's not to pile on ancient Israel, you know, and, and just kind of look how terrible they were. The whole point of bringing us back to that story is to warn us not to, same, not to make the same mistake. Not to make the same mistake. If it's possible for them is possible for us. And we like to think that we're immune from something like that. But there are too many stories of people who started well and finished poorly. And so if we're not just going to start well, but end well, what we need is a faith that perseveres. What we need is a faith that perseveres. And that's the main point of chapter 3, verse 12, all the way to 4.13, which is why John was stuck with such a long passage to read, because he takes that long to make this point, which, all of which is essentially a, a sermon on Psalm 95. That's what we've got in, in our passage. This warning not to make the same mistake as the wilderness generation and inviting us instead to enter God's rest by persevering in faith while the offer still stands. And so what I want to do next is, is look at that call, this call to persevere in faith, hold on to that original confidence. And then I want to think about how the author of Hebrews tells us to do that. What are the tools or strategies that he gives us to put that into practice? And so first the goal, then the strategy. And for the goal, look again at 3.12 to 14. Notice again, the, the big problem, this unbelieving heart, that unbelief that kept Israel out of God's rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God because, verse 14, we share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
we share in Christ, we enjoy the inheritance he promises if we hold our original confidence, the gospel we believed in the beginning, who Jesus is, what he's done for us through his life, death, and resurrection, if we hold that firm to the end. The faith that we begin with when we first trust Christ is the faith that will carry us home. Because again, it's not a faith in us. It's not in my ingenuity or resolve or ability to, to know how to sail a ship, right? It's, a fa- it's faith in Christ who has done everything necessary, not only to deal with our sin, but to bring us home. He is our creator and king, our brother who became like us, that he might share our humanity and deliver us from our sin, our apostle and high priest sent for this very purpose. We must hold fast to him. We must stay in the boat, even when the storms are rocking it and we think, "Mm, I don't know if this is going to work. Hold fast to Christ because it is through faith that we enter that rest that God promises, that rest. It's through faith that we finish well. Hearing the gospel only benefits us if we believe it, right? Hearing the gospel only benefits us if we actually believe it. Chapter 4, verse 2 again, for, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The ancient Israelites failed to reach God's rest for a lack of faith, but verse 3 We who have believed enter that rest. So it's unbelief that kept Israel out of the land. But it's faith through which we enter in. The goal is to hold on to that faith. To persevere, to hold fast to the gospel through any trial and every temptation that we might finish well and enjoy the eternal rest that God alone can give us. But but what's going to help us do that? That's the goal. What's going to help us do that, especially when, when it seems that so many fall or fail? I mean, just as Israel, ancient Israel, faced incredible pressure in the wilderness... Just as the first readers of Hebrews faced a pressure to let go of Christ and go back to Judaism or just to give in to sin, so readers of this book in every generation will find themselves under pressure to give up or to give in. There will always be voices telling you, go back to Egypt. It was better there. Just choose the slavery of sin and its temporary pleasure instead of waiting for and trusting God. There will always be voices telling us to do that. And even today, there are some voices who tell us, just stay in the wilderness. Just just stay there. Don't worry about the promised land anymore. Those that suggest that jumping ship into a sea of uncertainty is more courageous than holding fast to Christ. It sounds humble, but really what it is more times than not is an excuse to ignore 
whatever ethics of Scripture and live however I want to live. I'm just going to choose uncertainty than Jesus. What's going to help us finish well, really finish well? As we live out our days in the wilderness between the cross and the new creation, we are on that ship. How are we going to make it home? What's going to help us do that? Well, the author offers or alludes to four strategies in these verses, four rather practical ways that we can strive together to finish well and enter the rest that God offers. To be honest about our weakness, be open with our lives, encourage one another daily in the gospel, and fix our eyes on the better rest to come. And I want to think about each of these strategies that we see in these pages. First, we need to be honest about our weakness. And, and I mean specifically our weakness when it comes to temptation and sin. If you look again at chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, you know, take care lest there be any in you any lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the challenge, right? The, sin is tricksy. Like, it, it's conniving. It's sly. It plays on your wants and on your fears. It it appeals to your dreams and your desires, and it offers you satisfaction where you're most hungry. It finds out your weaknesses and insecurities, and it offers you safety and stability where you're most vulnerable. And no one is immune from its siren call. I mean, you can, see, you can feel the urgency in, in the appeal here. Verse Chapter 4, verse 1, while the promise of Entering his rest still stands. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. There's a seriousness to, to understanding the deceitfulness of sin and being honest about the danger it is. Or in chapter 4, verse 11, Therefore let us strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Falling through disobedience is a real possibility. And so we've got to be honest about what we're up against. If you don't identify the enemy, how can you fight it, right? We need to be honest about our weakness when it comes to sin and temptation. That's the first step, first strategy. And related to that, second, we need to be open with our life. We need to be open with our life. Being honest to myself about how vulnerable I am uh, doesn't do a whole lot of good if no one else knows and is able to come alongside and help me, right? There's a certain level of transparency that's required among the people of God if we're going to finish well together. We can't do this on our own. Now, since all of the introverts are started to sweat right now, when you think about being open with your life, uh, I want to clarify, this doesn't mean that you have to be open with everyone about your sin, right? You don't need to turn Facebook into your personal journal. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. That would be foolish, honestly, because 
The reality is not everyone is safe, right? That's just a reality. Not everyone is safe. Not everyone in your life can be trusted with the intimate details of your faith and your doubt and your shame and your struggles and your temptations. But there should be at least a few people in your life before whom you are an open book. They can ask you any question and you will give them a straight answer. Because you know that whatever fear or shame I might have, they're going to meet me with the grace of the gospel. You need at least a few people like that in your life. Because here's the deal. We might do a good job hiding our sin for a long time. We might look to everyone around us like we've really got it together. We're killing it for Jesus. When in reality, we're not even trusting him. And we're certainly not following him. The message of the gospel will eventually expose the true condition of our hearts. If not in this life, then when we stand before the throne, that's, that's what Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 warns us. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What we really think, what we really want, Scripture lays it bare. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We often memorize that verse to remind ourselves of the power of Scripture, and it does. But one thing Scripture is powerful to do is to expose our sin, right? We can't hide that from God, nor do we need to. He can see it, and he's the one who's done something about it. And so if, if my life is already an open book to the Lord, I need some people here with me before whom it's also an open book so that we can pursue him together. But, but what do we actually do with each other? Like so often those relationships where, you know, we, whether we call it an accountability relationship, whatever it is, so often it's kind of like, I failed. Yeah, I did too. Okay, pat each other on the back and go on and fail again next week. Like what do we actually do with that open dialogue and conversation as we pursue Christ together. The third strategy that the author gives us helps answer that. Encourage one another daily in the gospel. Encourage one another daily in the gospel. If you look again at 3.13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And, and what does he mean to, to exhort or to encourage one another? He's not just talking about kind of a general encouragement, you know, wow, you really cleaned up this morning, well, Dan, or, or something like, you're such a great mom. or what. It's not just that, right? It's a very specific encouragement in the gospel, in the gospel. We, we see that from the context in verse 14. Exhort one another every day, for we share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That gospel that we need to hold on to, that's what we're exhorting each other to do. 
We must encourage everyone, one another, daily in the gospel to remind each other the truth of who Jesus is. When I'm, when I'm sinning, when I'm walking away, when I'm buried in shame, what about Christ have I forgotten? Like, how did I get here? Well, it's because I've forgotten who he truly is, right? The creator who made us in his image, who rules us as our king for our good and for his glory, I've forgotten that he's the brother who gets it, who knows us and, hang, and can relate to us. The priest who cleanses me of all of my sin, all of my shame. The Savior who loves me so much, he was willing to give his life to make me his own. That's what I'm forgetting. And what else I'm forgetting? I'm forgetting who I am in him. I am beloved, adopted, forgiven, set free, glory bound. And I need you to remind me of that every day. We need that daily encouragement in the gospel. And it has to be daily. Like he emphasizes that so much here. As long as it's called today, as long as God's offer of rest is still on the table, the gospel is like a meal. Sometimes we treat it like a key. You know, we unlock a door and open it. And then if we forget the key or lose it, no big deal because the door is already open. The gospel is much more like a meal. We need to feed on it daily for fresh strength to persevere in our faith in God. I mean, you, you cannot make it a whole week on just Monday's lunch right? Neither will you have the spiritual resources you need to persevere in faith if the only time you open your Bible or pray or talk about the things of God is Sunday morning. We need to encourage one another daily in the gospel, which means we have to make space in our lives and our relationships to be able to do that, right? If we don't really interact with anyone and, and make that an intentional goal where we're speaking the truth and hearing the truth from one another, uh, that, that means disrupting our schedules, right? Or, or being intentional. Maybe that looks like a, a life group for some of us or getting lunch with a brother or sister in the Lord or texting one another daily, whatever it is. For some of us, maybe we need some focused help to deal with, with something we're stuck on. Uh, biblical counseling could be helpful for something like that. Whatever it is, whatever shape it takes, we must encourage one another daily in the gospel. And one of the specific ways that we can do that is the fourth strategy in our passage, and that is to fix our eyes on the rest to come. To fix our eyes on the better rest that is coming. You know, when, when you're suffering or hurting, when you are drowning in doubt or just burdened with temptation, any sort of relief looks really good in that moment, right? You know, I'm, I've told this story before where I smashed my finger in a car door. I was holding one of my kids and, like, the car door shut and I couldn't even get the thing out. It was in there so far. And that finger swelled up like a witch's finger. It would just look disgusting. It was all gnarled and black and, you know, and, and the pain from all of the swelling 
was unbearable. I would have done anything to get relief from that. In fact, I went to the doctor so they could lance it and poke like a little hole in there. I know it's kind of gross. I'm sorry, but boy, did that feel good, right? It just released the pressure. And when we are buried in temptation or drowning in doubt or, or just struggling to put one foot in front of the other, that relief sounds really good. And, it, and it's so tempting to just compromise our witness, right? I'll just tell them what they want to hear so that they'll finally like me or hire me or just get off of my back. Or to compromise our integrity, to... to indulge in some sinful pleasure that I think is going to, you know, provide some sort of happiness or escape. We want rest. And sometimes that rest we want is just far enough out there that I can't quite reach it unless I let go of the ship, unless I let go of Christ. I can't hold on to both of these things at the same time. And so I go for that only to discover it's a mirage. Like it, there's nothing there. It can't satisfy. It gives me no security to keep me afloat, and it can never bring me home. The rest that we really need, the only rest that will truly bring lasting relief and life is God's own rest. And it's not just the rest that he can give, it's the rest that he enjoys himself and invites us into through faith. If you look again at chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, when God says, they shall not enter my rest, he's talking about the very rest he has enjoyed since completing his creative work in the beginning. For he's somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Emphasis on my. As Kent Hughes explains, we are given rest by God. The rest that we're given by God, it's, it's not a relaxation of tensions. It's not just a, a freedom from whatever it is I feel I'm stuck in. It is a rest that is qualitatively the same rest that God enjoys. It's his personal rest that he invites us into and shares with us. It's the rest that he established in the beginning. It's his creational design. It's the way it's supposed to work. And it's a rest that he will consummate in the end. When Christ returns and everything broken will finally and forever ever be made new, when we will rest from our labors, not, not in some mundane inactivity, but in a joyful, God-filled, eternal service in the presence of the Lord, free from all of the junk, from the curse, all of the pain, all of the toil, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his own works as God did from his. And, and that rest is bigger. It's bigger than anything we can imagine. It's, it's certainly bigger than what Joshua offered ancient Israel when he brought them into the promised land. It's not just a zip code in the Middle East. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. 
you know, for, for all the wonders of, of, of being finally entering that promised land, that pales in comparison to the rest God has in store. It's bigger and better and more satisfying than anything we might come up with today. Whatever happiness we think we might find if I let go of Jesus, whatever pleasure or, or satisfaction that sin tries to lure us with, it's all smoke and ashes. There's no fire, no warmth, no rest. Jesus offers a better rest. And by faith, and this is amazing, by faith, that offer still stands. It still stands. It stands as a promise for the future of the, the restoration, the heavenly kingdom, the new creation, the restoration of all things. But it also stands as an invitation in the present. That future rest we look forward to comes forward to meet us in the present, in the present to bring us uh, peace with God and, and the faith that we need to hold fast to him. And that's an invitation for all of us. Today, if you hear his voice, all of us, whether it's an invitation to those who do not yet know Christ, to turn away from sin and to take hold of the only one who has dealt with your sin and your shame, done everything necessary to bring you to God through his own life, death, and resurrection because he wants to make you his own. That is an invitation to board the ship. And it's an invitation to all who know Christ to stay on the ship. Hold fast to him. He is your security. He is your life. He's your only way home. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's, that's what the author wants. That's what I want. That's what we all want for each of us, for myself, for this church, that we would not just start well, but finish well. To finish well through persevering faith to one day take our place among that great cloud of witnesses at rest from our labors with hearts swelling at the voice of our Lord as he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's our prayer. That's our hope. Jesus offers a better rest. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we confess that we need your rest. We are weary, Lord. This world is weary. There's so many, so many challenges, so much noise, so much that exhausts us or distracts us. Lord, help us see Christ clearly. Help us encourage one another daily in the truth of Christ. Help us hold our original confidence firm to the end, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.